morning, everybody. Welcome to the Vista. It is wonderful to see you here today. We haven't met before. My name is Austin Fisher. I get to serve here as one of our lead pastors. And if you're brand new here, we are especially glad that you joined us. We hope that you feel loved, that you feel welcome, that you feel wanted, that you feel right at home here at the Vista. Uh, Today, we are in the third week of our series called Sex Talk, a series where we are addressing a host of issues related to the general topic of human sexuality. And as most of you are aware, there is uh, absolutely no way we can cover every possible topic we would need to in this series. And so our hope, though, is that this series can start as the uh, beginning of a conversation that will go on indefinitely and might model what it could look like for the church to move beyond a don't ask, don't tell approach to human sexuality. Because as any of you who have kids know, um, when you give your kids, you know, like the talk Uh, The goal of the talk is not just the communication of some anatomical information, but it is rather the formation of a line of communication about sexuality. Okay, in other words, when when you give your kids the talk, the goal is not just that you would like, you know, tell them about the birds and the bees. The goal is that you would tell them, hey, this is something I want us to be able to talk about. That's the real goal of the talk. Now, in the same way, uh, the goal of this sex talk that we're having as a church is not just the communication of some theological information, but it is rather the formation of a line of communication about human sexuality, which is not something the church has been very good at in its history. Uh, And so thus far, we have talked about God's general design kind of for sex. We have talked about pornography. We've talked about gender roles. And so this week, we will be talking about the topic of homosexuality. And I'll start by just stating uh, the obvious here. Uh, This is one of the the, uh, most divisive and difficult issues that the church currently faces. And it is an issue that we will be dealing with for years and years and years to come. And for the most part, this is an issue that the church has dealt with very, very poorly. Homosexuals have been singled out and ostracized and misunderstood. And while the church has has mostly decided to just completely turn a blind eye to things like rampant, unbiblical divorce, the church has typically singled out homosexuality as just about the only sexual issue it will speak up on. And why do you think that is? Why do you think that is? Well, it's because divorce in our culture is so culturally acceptable that the church is afraid to speak up on it. We won't say anything. We're afraid to. Whereas homosexuality is, in the South at least, still more unacceptable than it is acceptable. And so the church finds it really easy to get brave and speak up on it. And there's a word for that kind of behavior, right? Hypocrisy, I think, is the word we're looking for. And it's sin, and it's something that the church needs to repent of, something this church needs to repent of. And then I also want to say that it's really important to understand that when we talk about homosexuality in church, it is a family conversation. And I say that because over the years, I have noticed that a lot of us versus them language gets used when we talk about homosexuality. And I've been guilty of it myself. How do we manage them? What do we say to them? What do we do with them? How do we handle them? Us, 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 them them, them. And I'll tell you when I realized that that was a problem. Um, There was a college student who I had loved. Allison and I had mentored. He'd like grown up in college, you know, in the Fisher household. And one day, a couple years after he graduated, he called me crying and confused because he was attracted to people of the same sex and had been for as long as he could remember. And he had no clue what to do about it. And he needed somebody to help him navigate. And that's when I realized that this was not an us 
versus them issue, but an us issue. Because we've got families here at the Vista who have children who exhibit same-sex attraction. We do. Vista families, our families, have children who are going to grow up dealing with this. And that means we have children who are going to grow up dealing with this. Because you remember what happens when we dedicate children here at the Vista? We ask you all to make a vow to support these families as they raise kids who are faithful to the way of Christ. And you all say what? We will. And so these are our kids. Then we've got couples, gay couples who've been coming to Vista for years and they faithfully worship, connect, give, serve, and go. They're in small groups. We've got people who exhibit same-sex attraction, but they've chosen celibacy because they think that is the way to be most faithful to what Scripture says and they experience terrible loneliness and isolation because of that and have for years. All that to say, homosexuals are not among us. They are us. They are a part of our family here. At the Vista. And so what we're going to do today is have a family conversation about homosexuality. Okay? What does Scripture say? What does that mean? And what would it look like for the Vista to be a place where homosexuals are welcomed and then pushed to become more like Jesus, just like every single one of us? Okay? We clear on what we're doing today? A family conversation about this. So recent polling would indicate that in this room... Uh, in the typical evangelical church, uh, a little over half of us, 55 to 60%, think homosexuality is wrong. Uh, a little under a third, probably 25%, think it's okay. And then about 10 to 15% just really don't know what to think about it. And in my experience, that's probably about right. I would say most people in the room think it's wrong. Some think it's okay. And then plenty of people are just really, really confused by the whole deal and they don't know what they think. Indeed, there are few issues that the church is more divided on, probably none. And the church is divided on the issue of homosexuality because it is a very complicated issue. And the people who do not think it is complicated, be they people who think it is so obviously wrong, or be they people who think it is so obviously right, tend to be people who have not really bothered to look into it very much. Okay? Because if you're going to have 100% confidence in your opinion, but you've only bothered to do like 5% of the homework, then a little bit of humility is probably in order here. You follow me? And this is a culture-wide epidemic of people whose opinions outrun their homework. I love the way New Testament scholar Preston Sprinkle puts this. He says, hey, if you're not willing to sit up in your chair, roll up your sleeves, and turn your phone off to study, then I'd say you should not form a very strong opinion about homosexuality. And when asked what you think, at least be honest and say, well, I'm not too sure since I don't want to take the time to understand what Scripture actually says and means. Those who have ears to hear, let them hear. And so now let's spend some time discussing our two basic options when it comes to this issue of homosexuality. Uh, And just so you know, we've got a bunch of resources up on our resources page. It's at the vista.tv slash series because you will need to do more homework than this 30-minute sermon is going to do for you. All right? So there are a lot of resources there that our elders have been working through. I would recommend them to you. And so now on to option one. Option one is known as the traditional view because it's the view the church has traditionally held. And it says, while we cannot control who we are attracted to, and we'll get to that, Scripture says homosexual behavior is sinful because it violates God's design for sexuality. Uh, In a roundabout way, we discussed this last week from Genesis 2. Remember when we said that God decided to create a humanity comprised of two genders, 
male and female, and set them up in a relationship of equality, similarity, and complementarity. And so God decided to create a community that's comprised of two genders instead of one because that best serves the flourishing of God's purposes for creation. And in light of this, so the traditional argument would go, homosexual behavior is a violation of God's design for the sexes, especially considering it cannot result in procreation, and procreation is an essential part of God's design for sexuality. Now, as Dave mentioned a couple of weeks ago, uh, sex isn't just for procreation. Thanks be to God. Right? Sex, sex is also for fun. You know, God created sex because it's good, and God is good and wants us to have a good time. Uh, but while sex isn't just for procreation, procreation is an essential part of God's overall design for sexuality. And so homosexuality's fundamental procreative incapacity means perhaps it is contrary to God's desire and design for human sexuality. And then from this kind of foundational picture we get of sexuality in Genesis 2, we then do find a few texts throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament, that specifically prohibit homosexual behavior. Okay, The best two Old Testament texts are found in Leviticus. Uh, Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20, Moses is receiving the law at Mount Sinai and offers some sexual ethics. Okay, Here's what it says. You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. Similarly, in Leviticus 20, verse 13, if a man lies with a woman, as a man lies with a man as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall be put to death. Their blood is upon them, which I know is shocking to hear. You just have to understand that you could get put to death for like looking at me the wrong way, you know, in the Old Testament. Then moving into the New Testament, we have two texts that say something fairly similar to one another. 1 Corinthians 6, this is Paul. He says, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Timothy 1, 9 through 10, similar Paul again. He says, We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, and a switch here to sexual sins, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine. In both of these texts, uh, Paul seems to be channeling Moses' teachings from Leviticus uh, to say that it's wrong for a man to have sex with another man. Uh, and the key word here is the Greek word arsinokoitai. Okay? Arsinokoitai. And pages and pages and literally whole books have been written about this word and what exactly did it mean in the ancient world. And that's a complicated question. Um, to the best of, of our abilities, I think it's fair to say that Paul probably means for it to be a general reference to any man who had sex with another man. And then the most important text that speaks against homosexual behavior is found in Romans 1, verses 26 through 27. Paul is discussing how all creation has rebelled against God. And God's reaction to that was to just give creation what it wanted. Right? It was to give creation over to its sinful desires. That's what the wrath of God is, us, God giving us what we want. Right? And here's what he says about homosexuality. For this reason, God gave them up to degrading passions. Their women exchanged natural intercourse for unnatural, and in the same way also the men, giving up natural intercourse with women, were consumed with passion for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the due penalty for their error. 
And so a couple of things to note from this Romans text. Um, first off, this is the first time that female same-sex behavior is mentioned. And that's important and will become important later in the series because whereas male same-sex behavior usually involved like an older male with a teenage boy, uh, female same-sex behavior was usually more pure and consensual. Okay, and we'll get to that later. And then second, notice that here we get a little more explanation as to why Paul thinks same-sex behavior is wrong. Okay? In the Greek, the phrase that Paul uses here is that it's wrong because it is paraphysin, which means unnatural or contrary to nature. And while Paul doesn't tease out exactly what he means, it seems likely that this is a general reference to Genesis 2 and God's male-female design for sexuality. Right? So anything that is not that, Paul would say is unnatural, it is contrary to nature. So that's option one, the traditional view. Uh, and there's a lot more that could be said, but just by way of summary here. The traditional view holds that while same-sex attraction is quite often not something that's chosen, that is, people can be born with a natural attraction to people of the same sex, Scripture clearly and consistently says that same-sex behavior is wrong because it violates God's design for human sexuality. Okay, So this is the traditional view in summary. Now we'll move on to option two, and I'll just go ahead and say that this is what's going to be most difficult for a lot of us when when we listen today, because I'm going to ask you to understand something you probably don't want to understand, and you need to. Christians should be the most understanding, fair people on the face of the planet, okay? So I'm going to ask you to try to understand this. Option two is known as the affirming view, and it's known as that because it wants to affirm the holiness of monogamous, committed, same-sex relationships. Uh, The best lay-level book written from this view is called God and the Gay Christian by Matthew Vines. Our elders read through this two years ago. Uh, And what I really appreciate about Vines' approach is that he wants to affirm the authority of Scripture. And that's important because a lot of people who take the affirming view don't really care what Scripture says. You know, they're like, I know Scripture says this, but we know better now, and so it doesn't really matter. And that's just not uh, a method that we're going to commend you here at at Vista. Uh, There are a lot of problems in it. But Vines wants to say, no, we can take Scripture seriously and affirm same-sex relationships. Here's an exact quote from him in the book. He says, Christians who affirm the full authority of Scripture can also affirm committed, monogamous, same-sex relationships. So that's his claim. It's a big claim. So how exactly does he defend this claim? Well, he starts by acknowledging that you can't really make a case for homosexuality from the Bible because every single time it is mentioned, it is clearly negative. And so while acknowledging that you can't make a case for the holiness of same-sex relationships from Scripture, he argues that Scripture's condemnation of same-sex relationships has to be examined more closely in its ancient context. And once we do that, we will begin to understand that Scripture actually does not say anything about committed, monogamous same-sex relationships. And the best place to unpack what he means here is probably Romans 1. So, as we mentioned earlier, in Romans 1, Paul condemns same-sex behavior because he said it's uh, paraphysin or contrary to nature. And affirming folks have come up with a couple of different interpretations to explain why here in Romans 1, Paul is not categorically rejecting all same-sex behavior, but only certain forms of same-sex behavior. And in order to understand this, okay, we have to take a, uh, a crash course on ancient sexuality. So are you ready for this? This is what you came to church today expecting, right? A crash course on ancient sexuality. So get ready for it to get nice and weird if it's not already. Um, So generally speaking, uh, the concepts of heterosexuality and homosexuality are very modern constructs that did not exist 
in the ancient world. And that's because ancient people did not classify you based upon who you were sexually attracted to. Okay? Because in the ancient world, and this is going to sound so strange to you, I know, but in the ancient world, it was fairly common for a man to like have sex with his wife slash wives, typically wives, uh, but then to also have sex with a younger teenage boy. Uh, and it would have never occurred to anybody to ask whether the man who did that was gay or straight or bi. No one would have asked that question because that's not the way ancient people thought about sexuality. In the ancient world, it was thought that who you had sex with was basically just a matter of preference, what you felt like that day, not orientation, who you were attracted to on some gut level. Here's how Vines explains it. In ancient times, even if a man expressed exclusive interest in one gender, his peers would not have assumed he was incapable of being attracted to the other gender. So a man's exclusive interest in the same sex would have been viewed as a different choice based upon different preferences. It would not have been seen as pointing to a different sexual orientation. Okay, so that's the first thing we have to understand about ancient sexuality. Uh, Who you had sex with was a matter of preference, not orientation, and it was common for people to have sex with both sexes. Okay, I know some of you are like, oh my God, it's it's the ancient world. And then the second thing we need to understand about sexuality in the ancient world is that same-sex behavior was often thought to be the result of excessive lust. Okay, I think we've got a slide somewhere that says that. Same-sex behavior in the ancient world was thought to be the result of excessive lust. So in other words, people who engaged in same-sex behavior in the ancient world, they were not thought of as gay. Again, there wasn't even a category for gay. Nobody was gay. They didn't think like that. Rather, people who uh, participated in same-sex behavior were just thought of as like really lustful people because they thought that lust tended to express itself in same-sex behavior. And here's one that's really important when it comes to Romans 1. If Paul was an ancient person, which Paul quite obviously was, who didn't understand that people could be born with a gay orientation, and if Paul instead believed that same-sex behavior was the result of excessive lust, then what Paul is really condemning in Romans 1 is sexual excess, not same-sex behavior. Okay, here's how Vines explains it. He says, Paul was not condemning the expression of a same-sex orientation. He was condemning sexual excess as opposed to sexual moderation. And same-sex behavior condemned as excess doesn't translate to homosexuality condemned as an orientation or as a loving expression of that orientation. And I know that's like a really complicated idea as a modern person to wrap your brain around the first time you hear it. So that's why I would encourage you to do your own homework, sort through it, and you'll eventually understand the point that he's making. It's a fair point to make. And to be clear, Vines is not saying that Paul's just flat wrong. Paul was wrong on this. No. What he's saying is that what Paul is condemning in Romans 1 is not committed monogamous homosexual relationships that are an expression of a gay orientation because as an ancient person, Paul was not even capable of thinking that thought, much less giving those instructions because Paul did not have the mental software to think like that. And there's plenty more that could be said here, uh, but the most important thing has already been said because it helps us understand the general way in which an affirming view tries to honor the authority of Scripture but still honor the holiness of same-sex relationships. The big idea is that when Scripture prohibits homosexuality, which it clearly does, 
It is not prohibiting monogamous, committed gay relationships that are an expression of a gay orientation, but rather it is condemning things like excessive lust or abusive forms of homosexuality. So things like pederasty, an older man having sex with a teenage boy, which was the most common form of same-sex behavior in the ancient world. And as I hope you can tell, um, it is a fairly complicated issue. And that's why you need to do your homework on this. And I'd like to begin by sharing a little bit of the journey that I've been on as I've tried to process this whole issue and do it honestly, faithfully, and biblically. Um, like most of you, I, I grew up with the traditional view on this and never really did any homework on it because I was just so sure I was right. You know? But that all changed for me when um, the student I mentioned reached out to me and he asked me to help him discern what he should do and I realized that I was an unreliable guide because I had not done my homework on this. I had opinions, but my opinions far outpaced the homework I had done. And so I said, well, man, let's do this. Um, let's go on a journey together where, where we read a book, the best book we can find from the traditional perspective. And then we read the best book we can find from the affirming perspective. We read God and the Gay Christian by Matthew Vines. And then we just be honest with each other about what we find, about what's persuasive, about what's not persuasive. And it was a very, very humbling journey for me, a year-long journey. Because it's really difficult to crawl back into Paul's first century mind to understand what this first century Jewish man thought about, you know, sexuality and orientation. And thus it's very difficult to understand exactly what Paul means when he speaks against same-sex behavior, which he clearly does. So it's possible, it's absolutely possible that Paul only had in mind abusive forms of homosexuality. And it's possible that uh, Paul's failure to understand orientation led to his condemnation of homosexuality. And it's possible that if Paul were to live today, he would affirm the holiness of same-sex relationships. That's all possible. I've got to be honest with you enough to say that it's possible. It is possible. But I don't think it's probable. I don't. Because while it's true that uh, it was somewhat uncommon, there were examples of committed monogamous same-sex relationships in the ancient world. It wasn't a foreign concept. It wasn't all abusive. And while it's, it's true that, that the ancient world did not have the modern concept of orientation that we now have, it's not really accurate to say that there was no concept of orientation in the ancient world because plenty of ancient thinkers thought you could be born attracted to people of the same sex. And most importantly, in my opinion, uh, Scripture primarily prohibits homosexual behavior because it's contrary to God's design for gender, not because it's abusive or excessively lustful. Okay, now this is very, very important. Was most same-sex behavior in the ancient world abusive? By modern standards, absolutely it was, okay? But when Scripture prohibits same-sex behavior, the rationale is not that it's wrong because it was abusive or lustful. The rationale is that it's wrong because it violates God's fundamental design for human sexuality. Right? And so that's, that's where I landed, even though I still do my homework on this. I read a couple books a year on this because I'll always have homework to do on this. I'll be doing homework on this until the day I die. But I, and I speaking here for our VISTA leadership, we, we think that the traditional view makes better sense of the teachings of Scripture than the affirming view does. And we find it difficult to, uh, as the church has throughout history, affirm the authority of Scripture in the ways that we need to if we're going to be faithful to it. 
by also blessing the holiness of same-sex relationships. And so as a result, we have a church, we have assumed a posture of being welcoming to the LGBTQ community uh, while not affirming same-sex behavior. And that's a very difficult thing, and there are so many questions that come up as a result of that. I know, and that's why we're doing a Q&A on December the 1st to try to get to some of those questions. And so if you've got something you want to ask, go to the vista.tv slash series, submit them, and we'll try to get to them. And I'd like to end with this. If you're here today and you experience same-sex attraction, which many people in this room do, or you're here today and you would identify as gay, then the most important thing that I would want you to hear today is that you are loved unconditionally by your maker and your redeemer. And I'm sorry that even needs to be said, but unfortunately it does because of the church's constant hypocritical unkindness toward homosexuals. And so you will always, always have a place here at the Vista. Because while we are not affirming of same-sex behavior, and we're going to have to lovingly say that from time to time, we're not going to single it out, we're not going to talk about it all the time, but we are going to talk about it sometimes. We do welcome our gay brothers and sisters, and we always will. And is that a difficult tension to live with sometimes? Yeah. I have gay couples in my office all the time who come in and tell me how heartbreaking it is for them. That they faithfully participate in the life of our church. They've got people they love here, and yet we can't affirm their relationship. And I get it. It breaks my heart too. But I explain to them our position and why we land where we do and their really understanding of me and of us too. And it's a difficult family tension that we have to live with. But y'all, families have difficult tensions they have to live with. You're about to have Thanksgiving for God's sake, right? You know what I'm talking about? I wish it was easy, but it's just, it's not. We live in a fallen world. We're all doing the best that we can. And then I'd also like to say that historically the church has done a very catastrophically poor job giving people who experience same-sex attraction a redemptive path forward. Because all we've basically said is, you know, uh, same-sex behavior is wrong, so don't do it, and good luck with that. That's all the guidance the church has given. When it comes to people who are unbiblically divorced, we got all these loopholes and exceptions we'll make, but we have nothing for people who experience same-sex attraction. And so we're going to spend some time on that in the Q&A, discussing what a redemptive path forward might look like for people who experience same-sex attraction. And then finally, if if you're here in the room today and you have harbored condemnation in your heart toward homosexuals, then Jesus loves you too. But you need to repent too. You need to repent. Because if we were to drag all of your sins and struggles out into the light, how do you think you would fare? I, I bet you'd want some grace. I know I do. I'm hoping to be graded on the most severe curve possible. (laughs) I need all I can get, man. And thankfully, thankfully, Jesus is full of grace. Grace and truth, that's what John said. And Jesus has made a stubborn commitment, far more stubborn than most of us would like, to transform us into a holy, happy, messy, merciful family called the church. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we're gathered here today as your sons and daughters, children of God, trying to find our way in a very complicated world. And I'd like to pray specifically for my brothers and sisters in the room who identify as same-sex attracted or gay. 
I know some of their stories, and I know the hurt and confusion they have felt, and I pray that you would help them to receive the gift of their belovedness, and from that place of acceptance, I pray that they would submit themselves to Jesus Christ and what he would ask them to do. And then I pray for us as a messy church family, and I ask forgiveness for all the ways in which our opinions have outpaced our knowledge, all the ways in which we have been harsh and unkind and hypocritical. And I pray that you would guide us into both deep holiness and profound humility so that we could show the world the severe but merciful love of Jesus Christ, our Master. We pray all of this in his name. Amen. Now we're going to give ourselves a few moments to respond. If you're new here, that means a few moments to slow down. Don't run, go get your kids. Don't think about lunch. Let the Spirit of God get beneath the surface and do the deeper work that God and really only God probably wants to do in some of our hearts today. You can respond by giving and receiving. You can receive communion, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. We've got tables on the side, back, up in the raised seating. You can respond by giving. Uh, We've got give boxes uh, toward the exits as you walk out. You can respond by standing and singing, by sitting and praying. But no matter what you do, I want you to take a few moments to slow down and let God do this deeper work. If you need to talk to somebody about something, and I think a lot of us probably do, one way or the other. We've got people in the back with lanyards on who would love to help you process what God's doing in your heart. So respond however you want, but you will never in the whole history of the world get this moment back. So you might as well be here where your feet are and let's respond together.